My name is Bert Lee, and uh, I'm, I'm, I have the pleasure of speaking to you this afternoon about separating progress from hype and how to tell what is true progress versus what, uh, versus what is more likely to be hype. Um, I think it's a, it's a, uh, has a little bit of math in it, just to warn you, so you're going to need to maybe get some uh, caffeine and try to stay awake, okay? <laughs> so just a fair warning, okay? Uh, so... Let me get started. Um, so I, I think as healthcare providers, um, we have the tremendous privilege of witnessing and participating in great scientific uh, progress. You know, we do a lot of things to help uh, people. And so just to give you an idea, um, there's been a lot of progress that, that, that I could talk about, but I think just to highlight a few examples, uh, this is an example for uh, heart disease. This is cardiovascular mortality around the world. If you look at U.S. and elsewhere, uh, there's been a steady decline since about 1990 to the current times. It's unmistakable that people are living longer and fewer people are dying from cardiovascular disease. And as you can see here, it's in every region of the world. Okay? And so that is truly progress. We, made, uh, we, we understand much better about pathophysiology of cardiovascular disease and what interventions work, what interventions do not work. So something to celebrate, something to be proud of, and something to get excited about as you participate in healthcare. Uh, another example would be in the example of HIV. Okay, so as, as, as uh, many of you will remember that in the 1990s, that's when the scourge of HIV took over the world. There were a lot of people suffering and dying. And, of course, uh, HIV is another example of tremendous progress. From uh, the advent of antiretroviral therapy to many other interventions, there's been steady improvement all over the world. Uh, uh, and, uh, and, and you can see there the trend in the U.S., but also in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and, and some of that, of course, is because of the PEPFAR money that the U.S. has been able to uh, infuse. Uh, but again, another example of tremendous progress. So I could spend the rest of the afternoon giving you one example after another where there's been tremendous progress in science and, and in medicine. But the part that you may not know is the other side. Okay? The other side is, is actually... Uh, the reversal of what appears to be progress. Uh, and so imagine this. You read an article in the New England Journal of Medicine. Maybe it even makes the, you know, like the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, etc. You get excited about a promise of new therapy. And doctors start to use it. Patients start to take it. It looks like it might work. And then two or three uh, years later, you find out, oh, actually, it does absolutely nothing. Or in some cases, maybe even be harmful. Okay. So you might think about, you might think about it um, a little bit differently. So I, I work with a lot of medical students, residents, and fellows, and I'm an intensivist, so I work in, a, in an intensive care unit. So imagine that you're joining me for rounds, and you want to impress me to get a good grade in your, in your class, okay? So you study, and you learn everything that, I'm, you know, that, I'm, you know, that I want you to learn, and you do a great job, and they say, okay, you did a great job, but you didn't do the following one, two, three things. Okay? So then you go, okay, so now I learned from my mistake. You go home and you study that. And the next time I see you in the ICU, you are perfectly honest. So I'm going to do A, B, and C. Okay? And, and, and I give you a nice pat on the back. It says, great job. But five years later, if you come back and you say the exact same ABCs, you will be wrong. Okay? 
Okay? And, and that, you know, if you're old enough in medicine, you will know that medicine is full of those examples. You get all excited only to find out, oops, never mind. Okay? And, 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 and I've been around the block long enough to, you'd like to say, at least in critical care, the way I care for patients when I was a fellow in training is almost 180 degrees opposite of what we do now. Okay? And I'm not exaggerating. I'm like, we used to do everything backwards and then, and, and then used to think that this was progress. You know, this is the latest scientific care. It was the latest scientific care, of course, but it was wrong. Okay? So how, so how do we separate out those two worlds, right? There is science that comes out. We celebrate it. It's in the New England Journal. It's in Wall Street Journal. Everybody's talking about them. But how can we tell whether that represents true progress that's going to last versus just hype that's going to go away? Okay? So let me give you some examples if, you, if you're not aware of, the, you know, of this process of what's called medical reversals. Here's a study by John, uh, by John Ioannidis. It's in JAMA in 2005. What he did was he took the most celebrated, famous articles in, uh, in medicine. So these are articles that everyone's talking about. thousand other authors have quoted this study. Okay? Well-known, well-publicized, big, giant studies. And then what they want to know is if you have a chance to repeat a similar study, do these studies get confirmed? Okay? So... Um, 34 of the most highly cited articles, guess what they found? That you could confirm it 59% of the time. Okay? So roughly half get confirmed and half get reversed. Okay? Another article, this, is, this one by Prasad from Oregon Health Sciences. Uh, this is in JAMA in, in 2012. His approach was, okay, since New England Journal of Medicine is usually the most high-quality uh, journal, Let's look at the ones that are published there. So, so, so he picked 35 high-profile New England Journal articles and then waited to see how many of them get retested. And he wants to know which one or how many of these actually get confirmed. Okay? 46% of the time. So roughly half and half. Okay? So it depends on whether you're a glass is half full or a glass is half empty kind of person. It's good news in that many things do get confirmed. Okay? It's not all bad. Okay? but many also get reversed, okay? So I don't know about you, but when I was a medical student, actually the dean of my medical school actually said these words to all of us, which was, we're teaching you a lot of stuff, but problem is uh, half of what we're teaching you is wrong, okay? But the, but the real problem is we don't know which half is wrong, <laughs> okay? And it seems to be basically true if you look at these studies, okay? Half of what we're doing now may be actually wrong. All right, and then, you can, and then in case you think it's just clinical medicine, because clinical medicine is messy, right? You have human beings, you know, there's all these like genetic polymorphisms, there are racial differences and, 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 uh, and, and differences in risk factors and so forth. So what about like in laboratory studies where, where the scientists can truly control every bit of the experiment, okay? So here's a paper in Nature where, where actually the, the company of Genentech was trying to figure out where should they invest their money, and this is in the field of hematology oncology, they identified 53 landmark studies in hematology oncology that they want to know, okay, we want to spend money on things that are going to be most likely to work out, of course. Okay, so they said, let's try to repeat these. Okay, of the 53 landmark studies, they're only able to replicate 11%. It's actually even worse than basic science. Okay, so all of, all of this is to say this, okay, there is gold there somewhere. Okay? You need to find the goal, 
but you need to know how to find the gold. But everything you grab is not going to be gold. There's a lot of rocks there too. Okay? So that's what this talk is about. How can you separate out the gold from the rocks? Okay? All right. So the hype, the fancy word is parapatea. What, what that means is a reversal of the plot. Okay? It, it actually comes from the literature. Uh, so some, some, you know, some hero is having some experience. It looks like things are working well. And all of a sudden, the plot reverses itself. Now tragedy hits or vice versa. Okay? So, so medical reversal is what we're talking about. And not only is progress common and to be celebrated, but we have to be wary about the peripatia and the reversals. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So in considering... Uh, how to separate out progress from peripatia or medical reversals or hype. I'm going to propose three things for you to consider. Okay? There are many more, but these are sort of like three fundamental concepts that I think every healthcare provider should understand. And one is the concept of flaws. Okay? They all start with the letter F, by the way, if you're taking notes. Okay? So one is, the, one is flaws. What do, I, what do I mean by flaws? This is a classic study that every physician should understand. It's a study by Kathleen McKibben. Uh, she and her team did this incredible research. She and her team read every single article that was published in the year 2000. Okay? Can you imagine that challenge? But, but she and her team uh, went through and read every single medical article in the year 2000. And she found 60,352 articles and then read through them all as a team and had a strict criteria as what is a good article that is good scientific evidence versus what is not so good. Okay? And so if you have never heard this type of lecture before, you might think, well, this is science. So perhaps maybe 90% of these are good articles. Okay? If you are a more of a skeptical person, you might think 50%. Okay? If you're really a curmudgeon, maybe 20%. Okay? But what, what she and her team found was actually that it was 4,132, which is approximately 6.5%. Okay? In other words, again, there's gold, okay? but there's a lot of junk out there. Okay? So if you're in the habit of not looking through and reading the method section, which I find that most of my students and residents just skip over, Okay? You're in trouble. Because unless you look at that detail, you're not going to know what's progress and what's hype. Okay? So let me illustrate their study a little further. What they found is that of the 4,132 high-quality articles, more than half, 56%, were in three journals. New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, and Lancet. Okay? So then, then the other 44 percent uh, also contain good articles, but, the, but there might only be like one or two articles per journal. Okay. In other words, the pragmatic approach that I take is I read the titles of all three of these journals because that's the highest concentration of the best quality evidence that's there. Okay. And for everything else, I actually wait for somebody else to tell me about because I'm not going to look through the 2,000 other journals. Okay? So, just something for you to think about as well. All right. Now, then, let's concentrate on the high-quality journals, like the New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, etc., okay? and see uh, how good are those. You know, if we throw out all the lesser journals and concentrate on the best journals, okay, how likely is it 
that it's going to contain high-quality data. So this is what they did. Now, now they read 1,530 articles in the New England Journal of Medicine and the other numbers that you see there. Okay? So now they're reading just those journals. And they, they had what they called a stringent criteria versus a less stringent criteria. So what does that mean? Is basically, stringent criteria is you wake up in the morning, you haven't had your coffee yet, okay? you're kind of cranky, okay? you're going to be a little more critical. Okay? The less stringent is after the coffee, okay? maybe you had your quiet time even, okay? now you're in a little more gracious, forgiving mood, basically. Because okay? you know, there is a bit of subjectivity, right? Okay, so, 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 so their team had predefined criteria for stringent versus less, less stringent. And let's think about how many of these New England Journal articles meet their criteria for high-quality and clinically uh, relevant articles. Okay, well, it may surprise you to know that they found 25 articles. Okay, don't, don't mishear me. It's not 25%, but 25. Okay, so it's 1.6%. And as you can see, New England Journal is the best, 1.6% compared to 1.3 and 0.6. But that's not to say that every article in the New England Journal is something that you should just, you just accept. Okay? You have to read the message section, like I said. Okay? You have to read the message section. Okay. Anybody know what NNR means? Okay. NNR means number needed to read. What does that mean? That means you need to read 61 New England Journal articles before you find one valid one. Okay? So, now again, don't, don't, don't make the mistake. I'm not saying don't read the New England Journal of Medicine. That's not the point. The point is you have to read it carefully and figure out which one has the gold and which one is rocks. Okay? Because if you don't find the goal, you're going to miss out on the opportunity to intervene and, and, and to really participate in that scientific progress and then benefit your patients. Okay? All right. So the less stringent criteria now, less stringent criteria, of course the numbers get better. Okay? But it's not dramatic. As you can see, the number needed to read is still 23 for New England Journal of Medicine. Okay? So all of this is to say, I'm not saying that you have to you know, uh, exactly believe it's 1.6%. The point is, there's a lot of junk out there, and you have to read the message section. Okay? And so when I teach this uh, topic to medical students, it's over a whole span of, uh, of a month. So we have a lot more time. But there is a criteria that we go through called the Pico-Rambo sheet, for example. Uh, and they have, they have to fill out as they read uh, the articles and figure out how to read that message section carefully. Okay? And this is what my actual uh, uh, article looks like after I read it. If you notice, uh, things are highlighted in red. Some things are highlighted in green. If it's green, I like it. If it's red, I don't like it. Okay? And then at the end, I put down my ultimate opinion, high risk of bias or low risk of bias. Okay? And there's a lot of articles that you will find that are high risk of bias. Okay? So flaws. Okay? So flaws. The, uh, so what, what that means, of course, is you have to read the method section and see if the methods are rigorous. Okay, the, sef, the, the second F is fragility, okay, fragility. So let's consider the idea of fragility. So let me give you a hypothetical example of a study that's reporting hospital mortality. And let's say with the therapy, there were 1,000 people. In the control group, there were 1,000 people. And the mortality outcome was 3% versus 5%. P-value is statistically significant. And let's assume for the moment that the methods were perfect. So you're not arguing about the quality, but these are the results. Okay? 
So what you want to do is not just say, oh, it was a positive trial, and then walk away. You want to ask, stop and ask yourself, how fragile is this finding, as opposed to how robust is this finding? Okay? So obviously you want robust evidence, not fragile evidence. And how can you tell the difference? It's very, very simple. You, you look at that control number. You notice that 50 out of 1,000 people died. And you do essentially a thought experiment. You say, okay, I know 50 people died in reality, but there's a lot of randomness in life. So what if only 49 had died? Would the results still be significant? And then you say, what if 48 had died? It just keeps going there until you get to a non-significant result. Okay? Now, you don't have to do the math yourself, fortunately, because you know, it is 2023. There's an app that you can download or you can go to the website. Okay, and you can just simply plug it in. All you got to do is plug in these numbers, the 1,000, 1,000, 30, and 50, four numbers, and in about five seconds, you can amaze your friends at parties and, and during rounds by saying the fragility index is X. Okay? So for this example, I'm looking at 50, and I want to know, okay, alternatively, what if 49 had died, or 48 had died, or 47 had died? And in this example... If 48 people had died instead of 50, the results would no longer be significant. Okay? In other words, the fragility index is a simple number. You just take 50 and 48 and find the difference. So in this case, fragility index is just 2. What that means is if two people had a different outcome, the results would no longer be significant. Okay? So I want to make sure that you're staying awake at 4 o'clock on Thursday after maybe some jet lag and long drives. Do you want a high fragility index or do you want a low fragility index? You want it high as possible. Okay? High as possible. Okay. So, and then the criteria for us is, is the number of people that we lost in the study, is that less than, less than the fragility index? Okay? In other words, you do 1,000 people, and let's say you lost track of 100 people, which sometimes happens. Okay? Well, if the fragility index is 2, and you don't know what happened to 100 people, that's a very fragile data. Does that make sense? Okay? So it's not just fragility index in absolute numbers, but it's in relationship to loss of, uh, of follow-up. Okay? Hopefully that makes sense, right? Okay. All right. So here is a summary of the world literature that we know about fragility index. There's four different systematic reviews that are charting that all the clinical articles that they've looked at, what is the average fragility index in medicine? Okay? Before this lecture, you might have guessed, oh, it's got to be very high. It must be thousands, maybe hundreds, okay. maybe 15. Okay? If you notice here, the, the median is two. Okay? So median means, of course, Half are less than two, okay, and the other half are more than two. Okay? So what you want to do is you want to concentrate on the studies that are on the right side of that median. Right? And then ones that are on the left, it doesn't mean it's wrong, but it's fragile. Okay? I wouldn't put that much confidence in the data unless I can repeat it. Does that make sense? Okay? So, uh, so the median is two, and then look at this. Percent with fragility index of one or less is 40%. Okay? There's a lot of fragile data that's out there. Make sense? It's, it's kind of frightening if you think about it. Okay? Okay. 
So here's an article from the New England Journal of Medicine, and, and, and I'm an ICU doctor, so all my examples come from ICU literature, but the topic is not that important, okay? So here's a randomized study looking at patients with, with ARDS. It, it's a study comparing the use of a paralytic medication called cisatracurium versus uh, placebo, and so it's a randomized trial uh, studying the efficacy of this particular drug, okay? And as you can see, they claim that improves the 90-day survival. Sounds fantastic. Normally, people get excited. It might make the news. All the residents will be saying, oh, you know, just to show how smart they are, they're going to quote this article, and so forth. Okay? But I'll say, oh, hang on. Okay? So now that you quoted it, let's see how fragile this is. Okay? So, so here, here's the raw data. 177 people in the neuromuscular blocker cisastrocarium versus 162 people in the control arm. 56 people died versus 66 people. Okay, and so you look at the 66, and you plug it into your handy-dandy calculator, and fragility index is zero. Okay, this is very, very fragile data. Okay, now I'm not saying it's absolutely wrong, but I'm not going to put a whole lot of stock in this. Okay, it, it would not shock me if this is not true. So, now if I'm right, what do you think will happen? if they try to repeat this study. Okay? Chances are, they're not going to repeat it. Okay? Because this probably just happened by some random chance. Okay? And so, in fact, here is the uh, NHLBI study done by the National Institute of Health, uh, and they found no significant difference when they tried to repeat it. Much better study, by the way, much larger, much higher quality. Okay? But, but the literature is full of examples of fragile studies that physicians and others uh, just simply accept and start doing that to patients. Okay? All right. Okay. So we said that uh, this is the fragility index. You want to look for stuff on the right side, not on the left side, obviously. Now, uh, so you want to avoid that area. You want to look at the, that area. And then just to give you a concrete example, though, that there are things that are, that are not fragile, that is very robust. And actually, I don't know if you know, but one of the best evidence for this is actually the mRNA vaccine for COVID. Okay? That may shock some of you, but actually, if you look at the data, okay, this is the New England Journal article by Baden. Okay? If you look at it, this was the number of people in the trial, large number of people. P-value is highly significant. And for our purposes, more importantly, fragility index is 139. And I want you to look at that in relationship to other medical literature. Where is 139? It's actually off the chart. Okay? It's actually one of the most robust pieces of evidence that we have. Okay? Okay? All right. So flaws, you want to think about rigorous methodology. You have to read the method section. Okay? Fragility, you can just pull out the app. Go to the website, amaze your friends within about 10 seconds with the fragility versus robustness. Okay? And the last part is a formula, and this is the part where some people start to cry. I'm not kidding, so I'm going to warn you, is the math portion. Okay? So just fair warning, okay? If you don't want to cry, maybe you might want to close your eyes, okay? But, but if, you, if you can, try to listen in, okay? So, so there's a formula that you need to understand if you're going to be able to separate progress from peripatia or progress from height. Okay, so I want you to consider this uh, uh, um, this situation. 
let's say now that you are you are convinced by this lecture and you uh, you know took one of my classes or some other class and now you understand how to look at whether whether a study is high quality versus low quality. Okay, so you've done that and you found the study to be flawless. Okay, and you even show to your mentors who may have be really critical people about science in general, and they even they are convinced that this is a good study. Okay? So everybody is in agreement this is a good study. So flawless RCT. And it's in patients with ARDS, and, and, and this study shows a reduction in mortality from 46% to 30%. P-value is significant, and, there's, and, there, and the statistical analysis plan is valid, and so forth. Okay? So everything seems okay. Alpha, beta errors are the typical ones that we use, 0.05 and 0.20, alpha, beta errors, and power. Okay, and then now you want to know, okay, I have this perfect study in front of me. No one can criticize it. It seems flawless. Now is this true? Right? Because ultimately, that's what you want to know. Right? I have this study. It's perfect. I can't find anything wrong with it. Then it must be true. Right? So if you were to answer this question, I'll give you some possibilities. Okay? 5%, 20%, 50%, 80%, 95%. Okay? I'd like to just see a show of hands. What, what do you think the correct answer is? Okay? Now, I know some of you are now scared because I've, I've been giving this lecture and now you're all skeptical about it. Okay? But what, what would be your answer prior to, to walking in here about half an hour ago? Yeah, 80%. E, I think is what I heard also. Yeah, something high, right? Well, well, it turns out this is where the formula comes in because this is where you cannot make that determination the way you, you just did it, okay? So, so, so the reason why people think it's 95%, for example, or 80% is because you assume, okay, you assume that because the alpha error is 5%, for example, alpha error means that this drug does not work. That's what you believe, Okay. But the chance of finding it in error by mistake that it works is 5%. So then we reverse that to say, oh, if the error rate is 5%, the truth must be 95%. And similarly for the beta error. It's one of those two are the most popular answers. Okay? But it turns out, okay, and I'm going to introduce some, some terms here. So let, let's look at a randomized, uh, randomized controlled trial. And I'm going to use a terminology apparently effective. I'm choosing that word deliberately because it appears to work according to the New England Journal article. The article says it, it, it works, so it appears to work. Okay? But that's not the same as does it truly work. So apparently effective is not the same as truly effective. Okay? So the truth is, does it work or not, versus what the New England Journal article says, apparently effective or apparently not effective. That's what you want to know. Okay? And, and this is the tear-inducing part. Okay? This is the formula you need to understand to answer that question. Okay? So there are different uh, um, versions of it, but it's the exact same equation, basically. And, and you need to understand the R here to figure out what this probability is. Okay? So now, let me try to illustrate this. Again, if you don't want to hear the rest of it, that, that's fine. Okay? But I'm going to try to walk through it in about five minutes. Okay? And it should make sense to most people. Okay? Okay. There's a, actually probably one of the most highly cited articles in, in, in medical literature is an article by John Ioannidis, and, hit, and the title of his, his, his article is Why Most Published Research Findings Are False, and he explains this equation. Okay, so if you want to read more about it, that would be a good reference point if, you, uh, uh, if it doesn't make you cry, that is, okay? Okay, so 
Let me back up and give you a silly example to make some of these points a little more accessible in case you are intimidated. Okay? So let's say that you, your job is, uh, you have a simple job, and your job is to look at the sky and see if a rogue nation is testing nuclear weapons. Okay? And, and, and all you're doing is looking at the, at the sky. Okay? So you want to know if, let's say, North Korea is, is like releasing bombs or something like that. Okay? So, so your job is to just look at the sky. Okay, so you look at the sky and you see this. And you think, oh, that looks like a mushroom cloud. Okay, well, it turns out that's a natural cloud. Okay, so in other words, that's an error. Okay, and this is called type 1 error or alpha error, that 5% that we were referring to already. All that means is the truth is this is just a random water molecule hanging up in the sky. It's randomness. There's no pattern. Nothing's really happening. Okay? But by mistake, you think this was a, a mushroom cloud. Okay? So that's what we mean by type 1 error or alpha error. Okay? And, um, and what you're doing is you're, conc you're concluding that there's a pattern when it's truly random. Okay? So from a medical point of view, you are, com you are concluding that it's apparently effective uh, or p-value is quote-unquote significant when the truth is it is not effective. That's alpha error. Okay, I think most of you have taken statistics, so that should be familiar to all of you. The other error is known as type 2 error or beta error. Okay? And this is where you look at the sky, you see that cloud, and you say, oh, I've seen that before. That's a natural <laughs> cloud formation. Okay? That's the other error. Okay? So now, now understand the truth is there is a pattern. Somebody setting off nuclear bombs. Okay? There is a pattern. That's not a random cloud. Okay? But if you make the mistake that it's random, that's called type 2 error or beta error. And so, in, in, uh, in scientific terms, you are concluding that there's no pattern, that it doesn't work, it's random, when it is truly not random. Okay? And this is where, in, you know, like medically uh, speaking, you are in error concluding that it is not effective, that its p-value is not significant, when it is truly effective. So that's alpha versus beta error. Okay? So it's, it's very important to keep that straight as we think about the formula. Okay. Oh, and, and, then, and then we usually set that at 5% and 20%, uh, as you probably remember. Okay? Okay. Another quick review is the difference between odds versus risks. Okay? So here's a silly example here. What is the risk of someone wearing a tie? Okay? The risk of someone wearing a tie? Well, there are one, two, three, four. It looks like eight people in, in that picture. And how many people are wearing a tie? It looks like there's two. So the risk is two out of eight in that scenario. Okay? Not a difficult thing, I hope. Okay? So it's two out of eight or 25%. Okay? Um, and then, you know, you don't, not that you need a formula for that, but it's basically tie divided by everybody. So tie or, or no tie. Okay? Now, it's important to keep that different from odds. Okay? Odds is what is the odds of someone wearing a tie? And it's simply tie over no tie. Notice the difference between tie over everybody versus tie versus no tie. Okay, so again, not a difficult one. Two people are wearing a tie, which means six are not wearing a tie. And so in this case, odds is 0 0.33. Okay, so you've got to keep those things uh, straight. And then if, if you have a risk, you can just convert it to odds. And if you have odds, you can, you can convert it to risk, go back and forth. Okay, so just a reminder that these are two different things you need to keep straight. Okay, so now comes the, uh, the tear-inducing part, okay? 
So, so let's consider all interventions for a disease when you're doing a study. And some of these are going to be truly effective, right? It, it works, okay? And then others are going to be then truly not effective. So it's, it's one or the other. These two have to add up to all interventions, okay? However, there's another way to, to look at all the interventions, and that is I can divide it into apparently effective, meaning the journal article says it works. So p-value is significant. Or journal article says it doesn't work, apparently not effective, p-value is not significant. Okay? So now put all these concepts together and see if it can make sense. Okay? That gives you four possibilities. Right? Where are the errors? That you're pointing with your fingers in different directions, yeah? <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, so the, so, so, upper, so, the, so the upper left, your left, is actually correct, right? And then the bottom right is also correct. So the other ones are the errors, right? Good, okay? So, so let's think about the null hypothesis, which means that it doesn't work, okay? Alpha error now is where you want to think about this. This is where alpha error is. Okay, this is where it doesn't work, that's the truth, but you conclude an error that it seems to be apparently effective. And you're multiplying that 5% of these are going to end up there. Okay? And if you know that, if 5% end up there, it's 95% end up here. Okay? Where's the other error? The other error is over here. At the, okay? Now, I'm, I'm reshading this because it's 5% versus 95%. Okay? Then the alternate is that it does work, and the beta error is here. This is the error, okay? This is 20% uh, of these are going to end up here. And, so if, and then this is 1 minus beta, the exact same way. And if I adjust it for the size, this is what I have, okay? So now the odds of this pretrial is simply the ratio of TE to TNE. It's the odds, right? It's one over the other. It's either truly effective or truly not effective. And then, the, and then when this is now apparently effective, notice you're looking at this world right here. You see the ones that have all this, uh, uh, all this like crossing lines here? Apparently effective. These are apparently effective. Those are also apparently effective, right? But how many of those are really true, truly effective is just this red area. So that's how you get to this... Uh, um, formula is odds post-trial is now that you have the New England Journal article, it's the ratio of this red box, which is 1 minus beta TE, divided by alpha TNE. And if you plug in conventional numbers for beta of 0.2, conventional numbers for alpha of 0.05, you get 16R. Okay? And this is ultimately the formula that you need to remember. And then to convert odds into probability, it's odds over 1 plus odds, as I showed you earlier. Okay? So you don't have to follow every step of that, but the bottom line is you need to think about the R, or the ratio of truly effective to truly not effective. Okay? So now, think about odds pre-trial, and think about this scenario to the left here, where it's basically 50-50, versus where something is very unlikely. Okay? And, and see how that impacts the outcome. In this case, the odds before the trial is basically 50-50, or 1 to 1, and odds is 1. The way I drew this one is 1 out of 16. It's, it's probably not going to be effective, 
but there's a small chance that, that this might be affected. So I, I chose a number like 116. And if you remember the, the, the formula here, it's 16R. 16 times R of 1 is 16. This is 16 times the odds, uh, odds of 1 16th is, is just 1. And then in terms of probability, it comes out to 94% probability that it's true if it's 50-50, but only 1 out of 2 if it's the, if it's the latter. Okay? So what does that mean? That means you cannot decide whether something is highly likely to be true or highly not likely to be true unless you know what R is. Okay? And then your natural question should be, how do I know what R is? Well, you know the R, that's the point of residency and fellowship and your expertise. Okay? If you're an expert in the field, you, you can have an educated guess as to what the probability that this intervention is going to work or not. Okay? So, to summarize, okay, how do you separate out progress and hype or progress and peripatia? You want to think about fragility, flaws, and formula. And ultimately, what you want is reproducible findings and real-world confirmation. Okay? You want to, to test it again and see if it's true. Uh, which, by the way, the FDA tip, uh, typically requires two randomized trials of high quality before they will approve the drug for that reason. You want to see reproducibility. Okay? So I gave you an example of uh, a cardiovascular disease, HIV, many, many other examples of progress. Obviously, you, you want to identify that, truly adopt that into your practice. Okay? So I showed you the fragility for the COVID vaccine. Here's the real-world data for that, for example. Uh, it, at this time, uh, it, it was very convenient that half of Indiana was vaccinated and half of Indiana was not vaccinated. So you, you can see what happens. Okay? And this is what they found, is that uh, the, those who were vaccinated was much less likely to be hospitalized, and then the, the deaths were dramatically different. Okay? So again, real-world confirmation saying that that randomized trial was not an accident. It was not a fluke. Okay? Okay. All right. So I think I'm going to stop here because we've got about five minutes, and I'm, I'm sure some, some people might have questions. So I'm going to stop here and see if you have any questions or comments. Thank you. Yes? So uh, if you actually just go to Google uh, and just say uh, uh, fragility index calculator, it'll give you a, it'll give you a bunch of options. But, um, but uh, I think the one that I was using is called clinical calc or, or clincal. I think many residents seem to have it, so, so I'm sure it's very uh, accessible. Yes, in the back. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question. I'm not going to repeat it just for everybody else. Uh, so I, I believe the question was, how do you talk about some of these you know, more, more complicated ideas uh, with, let's say, patients or people who may not necessarily be as comfortable with these concepts? Is, is that a fair summary? 
Yeah. <laughs> okay. So yeah. So I, I mean, I think that that remains a challenge of our times, right? Because you know, as as physicians, we have to take care of people of all walks of life. Some people are going to share your view. Some people are not. So I don't think there's an easy answer to how to do that. Uh, and so I don't have any, you know, like uh, uh, a quick easy fix. Uh, and and also I think at, at, uh, I think to be honest, some people are not going to be convinced by you, no matter how hard you try. It, you know, I think in some cases it's not the it's not the strength of the science. It just, you know, you know that's their view, and so you're not going to be able to always impact that. But I think the key is to be available to have that conversation when they want to have that conversation, when they're ready for it. And I think, you know, that's why, uh, you know, uh, there's no easy answers, but we have to make ourselves available for that. Um, let, let me just flip that around and saying, you know, so, so personally, uh, what I do most of the time, you know, when I give these talks is it's usually to a medical audience. And I will say that even for a medical audience, some of these concepts are, are actually a little bit uh, – Challenging, uh, and so you know, which is why I was joking about the about the tear, tear inducing part. Although I have had people literally cry during one of my lectures, so and and, and I like to think it's because it was so beautiful and, and so moving. But I, I suspect it was because it was just very painful to think about. But um, but yeah, but but I think the challenge is not just for the maybe the less educated people or the patients or 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 non non physicians. Let's say it is actually true for all of us. You know, some of these are not necessarily the most intuitive, and so we actually make the, you know, like uh, similar kind of mistakes or uh, misjudgments. There's a question here, I think. Yeah. Why don't the That's a great question. So, so actually, uh, many uh, of the top journals have standards for what they like to do, uh, and so they've been slowly improving over the years. Okay. So, for example, one of the, uh, of, the, of the ideas that you may or may not be uh, aware of is, is the requirement that RCTs be registered. So, so what that means is that before you actually do the trial, you're, you're supposed to publish and let everybody know that I'm going to compare A versus B and the outcome that I'm interested in is X. Okay? And that's to prevent uh, people changing it after the fact. You know, you know it's the idea of post hoc analysis versus a priority specification, okay? So the uh, and so the quick analogy is if I shoot my arrow first from here and it goes on the wall and afterwards I draw the target, I'm going to be an amazing marksman, right? Okay? <laughs> As opposed to having a target already saying, that's what I'm going to shoot for. I tell everybody and then I shoot and it will show how bad I am basically, right? So, so, so that's a, you know, so... You know, that's just a silly example, but that's literally what's happening with trials if you don't register them. Okay? So, so, so in that case, it was agreed upon, I think, in 2003, so about 20 years ago, the New England Journal, JAMA, Lancet, etc., they said we're not going to publish any papers that are not registered. They said they're not going to do it. Okay? So there is consensus about these ideas. You know, these aren't like these obscure ideas. I mean, you know, these are well-accepted ideas. However... Actual practice enforcement of these concepts is lagging. So even now, there are trials that are poorly registered, not registered. In some cases, until very, very recently, they were registering a blank piece of paper. Okay? So, so there's all kinds of games that used to be play with these things. And so we're trying to catch up. But I think human nature is such that somebody's always trying to skirt the rules. And so it's an imperfect system. Okay? So, so what I tell my students is that because of the imperfect, uh, the imperfect nature of the system, you know, the, the responsibility is on us to understand, 
you know, you know, uh, these ideas. And, and, and as of now, there's, not, there's no shortcut for you understanding these principles. Okay? I think there was another question somewhere there. Or? Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, so I didn't say just look at R. If you notice, it, it actually had alpha, beta, and R. You got to look at all three of them. Okay, so um, I think I think most of you have taken statistics, and you might recall from your courses that when you're making a diagnostic decision, for example, you can't just look at sensitivity, specificity, and then say that whether the test is positive or negative. You have to look at the pre-test probability. Okay, so sensitivity, specificity are kind of analogous to alpha and beta errors, okay? And R is the same concept as pretest probability, okay? Again, it's nothing magical. It's the same concept that, that you all learned about, okay? But you've got to consider all three, okay? If you don't consider all three, you can actually make a wrong diagnosis in the diagnostic er- you know, arena, but you're going to make the same kind of misjudgment when it comes to evaluating um, uh, studies. Okay, so so I know some of these concepts. I'm giving you very short answers, but that's because you know you know it's a lot longer course and you know, a lot more material. So if you want to talk to me afterwards, I'm happy to expound on anything you would like. Uh, you might want to bring your own own uh, own tissue, however. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yes. I think it's I think it's on uh, it's, I think it's virtual. That, I think that's why I'm wearing this. I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I think I, I kind of made a qualification when I started the lecture to say that these are just some of the tools. Yeah. And so, obviously, I didn't cover all the other ones because we'd be here, you know, like for many hours, and I don't think anybody wants to do that. So, so um, yeah, so, so I, think, I think these are just some introductory ideas. My goal here is not to necessarily, you know, have uh, somebody who didn't know these concepts before to, like, all of a sudden fully understand them. My goal really is to get your interest and hopefully, you know, have you realize this is something that you should learn, okay? And, um, and so there are many other ways to think about it. So I think you're referring to, for example, the idea of, let's say, generalizability, you know, which is if you do a study in this particular population, how does it apply to my patient in front of me? Because oftentimes RCTs will exclude number of, uh, of patients uh, for lots of different reasons, and, and because of that, it's nothing like the patient that, that's sitting in front of you, and that's a common complaint against these things. So like in the asthma literature, for example, I think the, the type of person who gets randomized in an asthma trial, it, it, it like represents something like 3 or 4% of a real asthma patient. So the, the vast majority of asthma patients would not have been enrolled in that trial. So you don't, you don't know for sure if it's really generalizable or not. So lots of reasons for that. You know, and some studies are done in, you know, let's say, in the U.S. And then, you know, like for this audience, you might want to apply it in sub-Saharan Africa. And sometimes it's applicable, sometimes it's not. And, you know, there's a whole, whole other talk that I give, but, but, but that's where, 
where, you know, where there is evidence in the U.S. is, you know, all saying yes, 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 and then the, the evidence from Africa is saying, if you do that, you're going to kill our people. And so, again, you know, this is where if you're, if you're interested in medical missions or global health, I think understanding how to do this is very valuable. Yeah. Okay. So I think our time is up, so I will close here. And then if you want, you can come up, and I'll be happy to take questions uh, on a one-on-one level. Okay.